Welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brooker, and I bid you welcome to this episode. I am joined by Ellie of the Instagram and Twitter account Bad Critic, and today we have gathered to discuss the universal classic monster movie from 1931, directed by Todd Browning, starring Bella Lugosi. It is Dracula. Hello, Ellie. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning, everyone. It's morning when we're recording this. I've got great coffee in my hand. It's time to talk about movies. Yes, sorry, Bob. Yes, I got some coffee over here as well. I am a little delirious because I stayed up late watching this movie and kind of contemplating on how I really feel about Dracula. But this is, I want to, before we get going, I want to mention that this movie, the, the, the movie selection that we're doing, was voted on by the patrons. So if you guys are a big fan of this movie, or if you like this episode, you have the patrons to thank because they voted on this one. So head over to patreon.com slash Horror if you want to vote on stuff like this. I'm so sorry to your patrons if I let them down with what we say about this movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> I feel no, so no. much pressure. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's no pressure at all because they, they wanted honest opinions. But so Dracula from 1931, you know, th- this is a very, this is a very, I think, important movie. I mean, you know, regardless of what you think of it from a, you know, a cinematic standpoint or just like, you know, whatever, it's. It is an important movie. You know, this was kind of like the, the Iron Man to, you know, the Marvel Universe. This is the, the, the Iron Man of the Universal Monster movies. This was one of the first ones. Um, this was before Frankenstein. They were made in the same year, 1931. This was directed and produced by Todd Browning, who is a very interesting character. Do you know much about this guy? I really don't. So, I mean, I was just, you know, reading about him on the Wikipedia page and everything, and I'm, al- I'm almost, like, curious why he got picked for this, but um, he, he, he kind of sounded like he was a grade 8 asshole <laughs> in his life a little bit. I mean, a lot um, of people in Hollywood are, so. True. So, you know, the, the, he started the tradition early, but Todd Browning, his... His background, his resume is very interesting, what like, led him to this point. When he was 16, first off, he was born in Louisville, Kentucky, um, which I think maybe explains some stuff. I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and at the age of 16, he ran away from home to join the circus, and he became kind of like this carnival side attraction oh, did he guy. Did he make the Circus Freaks movie? Yeah, yeah, is, he did yeah, Freaks. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, okay, yeah. Now I know who he is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like this guy, you know, he's been around. He's been doing, he's, he's done important movies too, you know, yeah. including Dracula. But I find that interesting that like his background is, you know, circus performing. And he kind of started out as... Oh, I forget the name, like a baiter or something. He's kind of like the guy that will be like, come here, come here, come, come see the freaks with the beards and blah, blah, blah. Like he's a kind of guy kind of like yelling at the crowd to tell him yeah. to come see these attractions. The crowd barker, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, cloud barker, yes. Uh, he, and then he also directed some silent movies and it, then he, you know, obviously transitioned into like these talkies with synchronized sound. But besides like him leaving his, um, leaving his family to join the circus. He also just randomly kind of like abandoned his wife to, to do like vaudeville. Sick. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his priorities are just all over the map. It's a pretty upside down compass that he had. Um, but you know, Dracula 1931, it, Bella Lugosi is amazing in this. I love the acting in this. The atmosphere is so good. Um, what is, I've, I've done a lot of talking. Ellie, what is your history with Dracula as a character, this movie, vampires? I mean, I feel like this is kind of like the cornerstone of a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, so in general, love vampire movies. I even wrote, um, I, I subjected myself to all of Twilight for Horror Press, which you can read if you go to horrorpress.com. Uh, <laughs> you can read what it, me, an aging millennial, thinks of the entire Twilight saga. Um, but I love, I'm also a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. Um, vampire lore is so much fun, and this movie... I wasn't expecting it to be bananas or off the wall at all, but I was so surprised by how straight laced it is. Like it's so um, by the book, I guess is a way of saying it. 
but vampires in general like are you know a metaphor for like all, all kinds of sexuality all kinds of repression all kinds of your inner demons that uh make you do very bad things you know yeah absolutely yeah. and you're right that this is a pretty but in a movie, it's it's very melodramatic, and I think that's very much of uh, Browning's style. Though he you know he really likes the the melodramas. Uh, I I do love and appreciate though the I, th- I think one of the best things about this movie is the atmosphere of it. You know they really did nail. There's I loved all the settings like the yeah the Castle of Dracula great yeah so good it is love these very tall ceilings it it feels like a very big space everywhere that you are in in that house and even in his uh, new estate in london i believe it was like carfax abbey carfax abbey because you know when when the movie opens and uh, rainfield renfield goes to castle dracula you feel how small he is in that space uh and it it feels like he could get lost in there very easily and then there's all sorts of creepy spooky things lurking around every corner um so i feel like that and there's so much fog too they they really nailed the atmosphere and environment i think in this movie i mean i love that opening set piece with the like big the like tree branches coming in the window the like big spider web across the staircase um and i loved uh, i guess the actor's name is dwight fry is that how you say it uh I believe played so, Redfield. Yeah. he was great i feel like he was almost acting in a different movie he was so campy and he was so like i loved his like little straight lace version up front and then his like just where he ends up at the end mm-hmm. um i was very i was very excited to see that performance um but yeah the opening scene is is great yeah mm-hmm. yeah and renfield is i think my favorite character from this i liked him enjoyed him a lot more than dracula himself but Lugosi, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, gives a, an amazing performance, and he is. The movie depends so much on his presence in the room and just his face acting that he that you know he Browning is demanding that he does. Mm-hmm. But um, you're absolutely right, uh, uh, Dwight Fry or Free Fry. He he is like on a different planet <laughs> almost. Yeah. Yeah, he is campy. His face acting, too, is very crazy, too. Like, Yeah, uh, he does th- a full body performance, yeah. It's very good. And the I think the shot that I think of every time I think of this movie is that shot of him uh, at the bottom of the hatch of the Vesta when, when the ship uh, finally reaches London and they find him and they just open up the hatch and, like, the sunlight comes in and he's just yeah. there at the bottom of the stairs looking all manic. Yeah, it's, it's so creepy. It's so good. It's like my favorite still from this movie, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of it plays to the the strengths of the um, the cinematographer that they had on this. I I am forgetting his name right now, but he the cinematographer did a lot of things, and as I was reading, he kind of had um, I don't want to say more control, but. He did run the show a lot when Browning couldn't, and there were it, just kind of like reading some articles. Apparently, the cinematographer on this, he was kind of credited for kind of being a co-director on this as well, with, with all the good shots that he was able to get and directed in that fashion. Call, f- oh no, I'm going to say his name wrong. Friend? Friend? Carl? Yeah, Sorry, Carl, Carl. Friend or Friend? Yeah, something yeah. like that. So, something that's German and I can't yeah. say. <laughs> I was just going to say, he went on to also be the cinematographer for I Love Lucy, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> of course. Just like totally related. I do have to say that this isn't my favorite Universal Monster movie. I, I find it to be kind of a slog. It's... I don't know if it's just because of like the type of movies that we're used to now in you know 2022 with you know very modern effects and sound mixing and things like that, but it this did feel like a a movie that was made by a guy who's used to like the silent era because I did realize because there's so many shots of where it just cuts to literally like we're just looking at like either like an empty room or just a bat in a room or just Bella Lugosi just standing there and there's no sort of like sound mixing or audio cues to go with it and i kind of realized i was like oh i'm i'm now like i'm very aware that i'm not hearing like the bat's wings flap or just like it screech or things like that it was it was kind of and it kind of made it a little bit soggy of a movie 
Well, yeah, we're super early in the sound and images are together on the same film reel era. I think the jazz singer was in 1927. And Mm -hmm. even that is like sort of only partially with sound, partially silent. So, you know, we're only four years out from that. And and yeah, sound, they've got the voice down, they can record voices. But the whole concept of like, what you're hearing, or even like mixing in music, um, is not on par yet. It hasn't really happened yet. Um, and so it's interesting when you look at this movie and you compare it to 1922's Nosferatu, which um, was like an unofficial adaptation of Dracula. They just kind of, Murnau just kind of just like, I'm just going to do it. And then got um, sued. Yeah. And got sued. <laughs> and then the version that we have now is like kind of cobbled together from different backup prints. Um, but I mean, when you compare Nosferatu with Dracula, there's so much more style and vibes and drama in Nosferatu. But that's because, you know, it's a it's it's a really is a silent era movie where you have a massive score. You have all these like title cards. And Murnau was like an epic lighting master like he pioneered an entire movement of lighting so um i feel like universal finally got their rights back they're like we're gonna make our dracula movie and it's like all right but it kind of sucks bro (laughs) like you didn't do anything (laughs) with it you have a bloodless vampire like come on (laughs) yeah yeah that was something that i found real interesting because this is also pre-code and yeah there's so much all of the violence happens off screen the only really violent thing we get is rainfield falling down the stairs at the end of the movie that's the most violent thing i think that happens that we actually get to see yeah and it ends on a very positive note which that's not how dracula ends it it does end i mean you're right it does end on a positive note but it's weird because like the movie i don't want to say like it can't decide whose its focus is on but like you know we have like this um uh mina character yeah and it's like her and her fiance john and they, they kind of become the kind of focus in the last 10 minutes of the movie like we're now like made to be compelled the movie's like trying to compel its audience to care about yeah their engagement and you know how she has now been bitten and is currently being transformed into a vampire question mark i wasn't fully sure of what the rules are for vampirism in this yeah they did not explain the lore at all yeah they didn't i mean they explain a lot of the tropes of vampires like all the rules like you know the uh, religious relics uh they don't like um actually i wrote them down here um let me find my list here yes because i do (laughs) i did find it fun that at the begin at the beginning of this movie we get the harbingers from the the little town in transylvania when Rainfield first shows up, and they're all literally warning him and spilling out what a vampire is. I thought this was really fun. So just from like the opening Harbinger speech, we get that the vampires drink blood. They can turn into bats or wolves, which I want to circle back to. They sleep in coffins. They come out at night, and uh, religious relics will protect him. And then later on, we get some of the other stuff, like you know they don't have a um, they don't have a reflection in mirrors and things like that. But yeah. I did find all of that very interesting. I completely forgot what brought me to this point here, talking about the, well, the I, tropes I, for it. I had said how it was like kind of bloodless, and we didn't really understand the lore of like why, you of know, like how it works, of like how they transform people. Because yeah, it seems that like he's just he's just feasting. He's not necessarily trying to convert people, although he does have his three brides. This is this is an example of something that many studio films do when they're adapting a really famous piece of work. You can still see this in movies today, where they rely on the audience going in and already having a relationship with the drama of this character. And so they don't do the work of setting it up or explaining it. So like now we're watching it what, 90 years later? And it's like, what's that about? <laughs> what was that going on? Because we don't have the context anymore from, mm. from, from what the sort of like social consciousness was at the time around this legacy. So they made a killing off of it because everyone was like, oh, Dracula it was popular on Broadway. Bela Lugosi was playing it on Broadway. So um, like it brought in crowds and made a ton of money that way. But um, as an oeuvre on its own, like it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't really stand the test of time in the same way that, that other works do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I was so confused with 
at least like Renfield's character about like yeah because I think he's the I think he's the most sympathetic sympathetic character in the movie because I love how conflicted he is because he obviously has this new like kind of hunger for yeah. flesh but he knows enough that he shouldn't he shouldn't consume humans and yeah. so he's eating things like flies and spiders and rats but uh, I found that so super interesting about him. I mean, he, so I, I've never read all of Dracula. I've read parts of Dracula. I've seen also, if your listeners haven't watched it, I highly recommend uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, which is a, um, in some ways a, a, a more faithful adaptation, though he does change a lot. Um, but Renfield is like a very interesting character and in this and in 1931 dracula i feel like he's the most compelling character because again i i mean personally i love the drama i want i want i don't like this the like straight laced couple who's like we're gonna get married i'm like well good for you but the movie i want it for the movie i want to see the guy that's like trying to eat spiders you know like that's where the story is um and and in the original dracula it's like a mix of all of these characters and he's kind of this character who's who's caught between the world of the dead and the world of the living, right? He's, he's, he's bound to his master, um, but he doesn't have all of the superpowers, so he's, like, stuck trying to, like, consume whatever life force he can to just, like, stay alive, which is, like, s- such a rich metaphor. You could, go, you could go in all directions with that. Yeah, absolutely. And with, you know, him just trying to, like, you know, like you said, just, like, consume all sorts of different things to stay alive, this... I mean, we'll probably get into it later, but this movie really felt like it was about just, like, control, really. Absolutely. Not just control of, like, you know, a person over another or, um, you know, like, having, like, a little subject doing doing your bidding for you, but it's also kind of, like, just, like, a control over territory as well, because it's... I always kind of laughed that this movie opens up with a real estate transaction, and, like, that's, like, what... That's what brings Dracula into the movie. You know, he got on Zillow and he found Renfield and he wanted to buy this property over in he's London. He's like, you know, he turned creature of the night and yet he still needs to do paperwork all the time. Like, I know, this movie opens up with paperwork. But that's the book. That's what's in the book, too. It's like, I, you know, he is this, it's this accountant who who is going to, like, this rich guy in a castle needs to sign some papers. I guess I have to go live with him for a while and shit goes down, you know? I mean, yeah. it's also kind of like that thing of like, how can I get my victim to come to me? Oh, paperwork business. That will, <laughs> that will get him. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't real estate, it would have been, I don't know, some sort of repairman or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, very 19th century, uh, uh, what is it, inciting incident, Let's shall we say. I yeah. almost wish it was kind of like a used car situation. Like he's going down to like the used carriage dealership and Renfield's <laughs> trying to like buy him on like this luxury carriage and all that. And that's how they meet. Uh, they, they take it for a spin that then he turns into a bat <laughs> during that. That would have been great. <laughs> I mean, Dra- I mean, Dracula at this point is like almost a, a, a caricature of himself, you know, like, I mentioned I was a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but the uh, the Dracula episode in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is exactly that conceit. Like, they're all starstruck that this famous vampire is, like, in their town, and that's, like, part of the the gag of the, of the episode. Um, <laughs> you know, but... I think back to the back to the you know the in the nineteen thirty one version you mentioned the Hayes Code, um, and it, it is pre code, but that didn't mean that there wasn't, you know Hayes was Hayes the Republican was kicking around for for a, a good decade before they actually implemented the Hayes Code, and so even though it wasn't an official policy, um, there still was I think as of like twenty seven twenty nineteen twenty five. Um, he was still like had like this list of like guidelines, you know, that included a lot of things that would nineteen twenty seven, yeah, that would included a lot of things that would end up being in the in the legal in the legal code. So you know, you're you're right when you watch this movie, like there's no violence on screen, there's no blood on screen, and there's no sexuality either. The whole point of the story is like, you know, this very uptight uh, British woman, mm-hmm. a society woman, is like, um, 
you know, tempted by this uh, rich, exotic foreign man, you know. Um, so there's that whole level to the story that um, uh, it's just like completely erased. Like, no, women don't have desires. No, 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 no. Not in this movie. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it like it's funny because Dracula, when he turns Lucy and uh, Mina uh, a little bit, you know, yeah. they kind of they start to have more agency as characters, mm-hmm. too. And they've been able to unconform from from you know yeah. their their own Britishness, and like I love I love the fact that Lucy becomes a sort of side villain on her own. She becomes the woman in white as she's stalking children. Um, so uh, th- there's a lot of cool implied, scary, violent things that are going on. We just don't see them. Yeah. Um, but like kind of getting back to kind of like the things that we normally think of with vampires, like them being bloodthirsty and violent these monsters um sexy there is like kind of some sex appeal a little bit just like with like the the, i mean i know just like him kind of creeping into like women's like uh rooms at night and it's him like over their bed and things like that and like you know going for the neck and everything while it still cuts away from all that there's like still like a little there there with that but getting back to my real estate point and this being about sexy con- real estate yeah, and this being about <laughs> control it's like it, it to me and I, it didn't really click with me until me watching it this i think this was like my fourth time watching the movie for uh mm. last night um it really clicked with me it was like oh he's moving because he needs a fresh breeding ground or not breeding ground fresh hunting ground yeah where people don't know about him because yeah. The movie very much opens up with all these people that already know all the rules. They're praying. They're all, like, wearing religious relics. They know not to go out at night. They know to avoid him. And it's not until this outsider that's uh, ignorant to all of this. Yeah. And so when he goes to... And you can see how, like, revved up he's been. Like, how much he's been, like, just caged because he's exhausted his food supplies in Transylvania. It's minutes after he's off the boat, he kills a woman in the streets. Like, that's, like, how just fucking revved up he is to like finally like get some more blood fresh blood and yeah. uh he, he can't wait um he, he kills someone in the streets and i love that he instantly goes to a theater too to to find more people um it's great and it's just him spreading his his stuff and trying to now gain gain a little bit more control in a new territory i i found that it, that like really clicked yeah. with me this time and I think there's also, like, you could, you know, especially with real estate, like, there's a whole um, theme about class that the movie doesn't really explore. Um, but, yeah, like, he's not going after poor people. Like, he's he's establishing himself in the society. He's not trying to just, like, slide mm. under the radar. Like, he announces himself. He's like, you know, hey, London, a new rich dude is here. Like, let's party, slash, <laughs> can I drink your blood, please? Thank you. Well, yeah. it's 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 a good point you make about him going after kind of like these high society people, but I still mm-hmm. found it interesting that he never went after somebody with like authority or someone that can make decisions for him. Because it yeah. seemed that anybody that he would bite or con- start to consume would be under his um, control. Because he, he, there's so many lines where he just says "obey," you know. Yeah. So yeah. I was always like questioning why didn't he go after like Doctor Seward? Why is he going after? his daughter and her friend. Like he's not going after people that have real authority or power. I found that interesting. Well, I think that plays into how we see what we see horror or what is horrific to the society at the time. Right. Mm. And so like you can tell very much in a movie like this, they don't see the men as being vulnerable or the men of authority are not vulnerable rather. Um, And so what's scary is again, foreign wink wink nudge nudge this foreign influence coming in and corrupting you know the young women right correct corrupting the virginity of these perfect english women you know Mm. um i think that's part of what plays into what people perceived as as horror at the time you know oh that's a very good point Mm -hmm. i like that a lot Mm -hmm. um i i that that makes me think like is this movie kind of get because you you say like this this outsider coming in is this movie not only just that um but is this movie kind of also a thing of like religion versus science yes in this 
but I find that the movie is kind of pro-science in a sense. Um, I could be wrong with my interpretation well, of that. It, I think it's, um, I mean, you see this, this comes up in, in, an, in like a lot of exorcism horror movies or the whole Conjuring series, the idea of like religious, religiosity having a science-based rules Hmm. right right that he's repelled by a cross right so there's a professor who is like he's repelled by a cross therefore it's like using science to validate the power of religion um uh, or the power of these religious rules right like it's also a specific religion it's like a specific kind of uh you know christianity um and it presupposes that like you know, Jesus is real, God is real, that they have superpowers to, like, you know, repel the, <laughs> repel the dark forces, like, in a physical manner, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, movies like this, um, sort of use, it's science or religion is, is, is the same, right? There's a, it's a scientific religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's honestly a great way to kind of explain some of that, or like that a lot. Because I've always found that interesting, that Dracula is so kind of tied in to some like Christianity a little bit. You oh know? yeah, absolutely. You know, with like you know, kind of say you know he's like spawn of Satan or whatever, and mm-hmm. you know he is repelled by those relics, like you said. So I just found that so interesting that um, I'm almost not like curious why the movie didn't lean into that maybe even more so. I th- I think that's that's straight up Hayes Code stuff, like. Um... You know, the the guidelines in 1927 was like no ludity or suggest ludity. <laughs> I meant lewd and nudity. <laughs> ludity. Ludity. Um, you know, no any no inference of sex perversion, um, no race mixing, no um, no white slavery is is specifically one. You know, um, so it. I think a lot of that you can you can tie into Dracula. I think they probably um, they probably had a lot of uh, things they wanted to sidestep with with Dracula because the whole crux of Dracula is that like like dude has three wives like dude fucks you know <laughs> he's he's doing some shit in his castle like I don't know what to say but like they adapted they in their adaptation it has to be completely sexless you can't even talk about perversion and or what people might call perversion so. Um, you had a lot of stuff to like work around, I think, with this. I do think it's noteworthy that, like you said, he does have three younger wives. Um, it's interesting though that he is not interested in them at all. He is way more interested in Renfield, and Mm -hmm. these kind of early Universal monster movies kind of like have a lot of that kind of queer coding in them. Which I don't know Todd Browning's um, preference or sexuality. I didn't kind of see that come up anywhere in my readings. Uh, but it's not like I don't think it's very much like a I don't think it's like a James Wales situation. But right, um, right. it, it is kind of interesting that he is way more interested in Rainfield and controlling him, but not like having like his wives do his bidding or anything like that. And mm-hmm. y- yes, like the Mina character comes up and everything, but it's just. It's just interesting that it's just all control, him trying to control all these people. And he's yeah. kind of, he's using more of a, like Mina as like a threat to Rainfield because Rainfield doesn't want anything to happen to her either. Because again, like you said, it's kind of, isn't it sad that it's happening to these gorgeous young women? Not, mm-hmm. not like these. Old... The perfect victims. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's perfect, what... quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> what you guys say? Uh, Mina in this, I thought that she was really good when she was starting to turn vampiric um the Mm -hmm. stares that she would give were honestly as creepy as lugosi's i I found found them very good no her and lucy both were great like i mean i often think like it must be so much it must have been so much fun for them to like play a character undone you know what i mean like (laughs) you're they're so straight laced all the time it must be fun to just like let loose and and play something a little kooky i did want to bring up two discussion points before moving on to the segments yes okay one i said i'll circle back to it so i'm doing that now vampires turning into wolves (laughs) is that a thing is that a thing that i'm just been very unaware of uh i do we do get a moment here it's off screen but john after dracula quickly exits their their house he says, oh, there's like a creature 
running super fast across across the lawn, which is Dracula turning to a wolf running away. It, it, is is that a thing? Is that a trope that vampires could turn into wolves that I just didn't know about? Um, I think there's vampires turning into into kind of any creepy animal. I think comes up in Dracula a lot in a lot of Dracula adaptations. Um, but. I don't know. I'm trying to think about it now. Because mostly people, went, like, people, I think, now steer away from wolves just because it's like that's a werewolf. So mm-hmm. they're, they don't want to mix lore or anything. But yeah, it's true. That did stand out to me. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have an answer to that. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. I was almost wondering if, again, this is my head with much more contemporary vampire yeah. movies in there and then going back and watching this movie from 1931. But in a lot of movies or shows, when we do have a vampire, when they kind of real vamp out, they kind of turn into like this ghastly, beastly thing sometimes, mm-hmm. like kind of like Morbius or uh, <laughs> uh, some like uh, the Dracula in the the what was that movie with um, uh, Hugh Jackman, um, Van Helsing? Um, oh right, I forgot about he, that. He one. really turns into like this beastly thing but it's still very much kind of bat like um yeah. so i wonder it was like kind of getting into that how like they kind of do have this human form that they can contain but they can really think, vamp out you know i mean there's a lot of transformations that happen in uh coppola's dracula um which have you ever watched that one have you no that? honestly i haven't seen too many vampire movies because i've oh. never been super compelled to vampires as a monster um well i highly recommend any cinema nerd has to watch it because um he him and his son roman made this movie using basically every old school cinema trick in the book so they have matte paintings in it they do double triple exposures at some point to like combine do combination shots Hmm. they have all kinds of they use all kinds of old lenses and old cameras and practical reflective surfaces and smokes and lasers to like create these incredible effects it's really a masterpiece don't let keanu reeves's acting fool you it's great you should watch it it's super dramatic and in that movie you have gary oldman transforming into all kinds of different creatures i think they have this like have this elaborate latex bat costume um he may turn into a wolf at one point i think um he turns into this like big hairy beast and has sex with one out in a writing at one point. I think. Anyway, whatever. It's <laughs> it's wild. It's wild. It's the opposite of this movie. <laughs> I am Dracula. So for the subgenre categorization of the movie Dracula, um, I feel like it's pretty obvious. This very much slides into monster movie, universal class. Yeah. The universal monster movies are very much kind of like a, a subgenre of their own, I believe. Vampire movie. Uh, was there kind of anything else that you're getting from this? No, I think it's it's a pretty straight up uh, monster movie, vampire movie. Um, I always like to throw class discussions in there, so I feel like part of it is also just like a, is that a subgenre? Is class horror a subgenre of horror? Sure. I don't know. Yeah. It is now. It's for me. It is yeah. for me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, uh, and, and I think it touches, definitely touches on themes of, um, of sexuality or doesn't touch on themes of sexuality weirdly. So. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, this kind of goes with a lot of these early universal movies, mo- monster movies, but it's, yes, it's horror, but it's also very dramatic. Like, this is a drama, yes. much like Frankenstein is as well. Um, oh, well, va- vampire movies are, vampires are always melodrama. Like, they're the most dramatic bitches out there. They're so, <laughs> just like, it's constant drama with them, so. It is, and uh, he has that very dramatic line, too, when he's at the symphony, meeting all these characters and i love that line he has he's it's something along the lines of uh there's uh, there are things far worse than death for men to fear um mm. and it is honestly just like whoa dude we just met you okay like <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> chill. <laughs> it's like, yo, the symphony isn't that bad. Like, calm down. <laughs> um, but it, I find that interesting. Like, you know, what does what does he think is fearful? What does he think is scary? What what is he not scared of? And is it just because he is the undead that he just can't be scared of dying anymore? Um. Yeah, I mean, oh, I, I, obviously subgenre is a gothic horror. It's, oh, it's yeah. uh, of course, gothic horror. Um, and that's kind of the, the mood that comes into most gothic stories, this, like, ennui, right? This, like, this rich, powerful man, but he's just so bored. He just, you know, he doesn't have the thing that he wants, which is love, you know? He, he has everything but the, but the one true desire. <laughs> yeah. Does he want love though? I don't. I don't. Well, does he know what love is? Oh, true. Because <laughs> right, like if you want to wrap in control into that, like if he's so used to controlling everything, mm-hmm. then he might yearn for something, but he might also not let himself be vulnerable to, you know, to have it. Which is, I think, why vampires are very popular with teen girls. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, besides, you know, it's a it's a good old vampire movie. Uh, I I do wish that we get that we got a little bit more tropes. I mean, it establishes a lot of tropes for vampires, but I wish that the movie played a little bit more around with the whole like him avoiding sunlight. Um, yeah, I, I just I just wish we got a little bit more of that in this. But um, that was kind of like my only main real like kind of like vampire theme that mm-hmm. I wish we had more in it. Well, again, like that, and that's such like a rich. Um, metaphor to play with as a as a filmmaker, where light is your your medium is light, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone who like is a is not just um, not just doesn't is doesn't appear in the light, but is afraid of the light. You know, like come that like come on, you can mine that metaphor for years. Like let's go. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it it w- would have been fine to see that played with a little bit more. Um, this is a very talky movie too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that goes into it being a drama, but there is, I, I did like all the moments when we're at the sanitarium in Dr. Seward's kind of quarters, um, and they're just kind of like discussing, you know, the possibility of there being a vampire and what they need to do about this. Like, all of that I thought was just super good, and it is very talky, but it's... Mm. Uh, I found it clever in some instances, but it's also kind of campy in ways. Like, cause Bella Lugosi just showing up, uh, full tuxedo all the time in this yeah. movie. It's full cape. Yeah, drama. It's yeah. great. He's like, I'm a badass. I, I I know what I'm here to do. I'm Vader before Vader's even existed. Um, <laughs> and th- he's emo Vader. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, <laughs> he's emo Vader. That is fantastic. Yeah. Um, same sex appeal, um, mm-hmm. but <laughs> definitely. Um, he, and it, it was very cool. That while I'm talking about this scene, this is all over the place. I'm still half awake this morning. Sorry, folks. Um, <laughs> in this scene, though, when we're in Seward's kind of sanitarium quarters, I do love seeing this very early editing joke because they're all talking about you know this man you know what, what do we do what, what do we need to do about him like who are you talking about and then in the they're like kind of made uh announces count dracula has entered the, the room it was a pretty fun funny editing joke i thought um <laughs> but yeah yeah this it, but like in this scene it's very talky they're like trying to figure out who he is where he's been and things like that and i love this moment where van helsing shows him the mirror and Bella Lugosi just fucking slaps that out of his hand, and he looks appalled. <laughs> it's great. He's like, "Get that away from me!" Yeah, he's afraid of mirrors and the and the light. Like, hello, mm-hmm. yeah. And the the crucifix that uh, he shows yeah. him. It's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, I don't think any other subgenres besides you know everything you said: monster movie, smell dramatic, monster movie, goth. Yeah. Goth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a gothic real estate. Yeah. That's <laughs> they must have come through a terrible storm. <laughs> What's that? Why? Come from that hatchway. 
Why, he's mad! Getting into the fear analysis. According to Dr. Carl Albrecht, there are five types of fears that humans share psychologically, and those fears are the fear of extinction or death, mutilation, body invasion, loss of autonomy, separation, abandonment, or rejection, and then finally, humiliation, shame, or worthlessness, i.e. the death of ego. Of course, we could always talk about more things that we were getting from this, but uh, Ellie, I'll have you start. What types of fears were you getting from Dracula? Well, we may have touched on this already, but I think it really touches on uh, autonomy or loss of autonomy, mm-hmm. um, the body horrorness of it all, um, and just the, you know, you said it right up front about um, you know, Dracula is all about control, and and this and the the lore around Dracula is very much, you know, this this uh, the the dangers of sexuality or the dangers of feeling sexual attraction, um, or of having any kind of sexuality, right? Um, you know, it will undo you. You will start murdering children and lusting for blood if you get a little bit horny. <laughs> like, <laughs> goddamn. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think it, the lessons of Dracula really play into that. I think there's also something to be said about, I don't think this is in the movie, but I think you can interpret Dracula this way. And I'm um, sorry if people have read Dracula the novel. I did not prepare enough to have read the full book before starting. Um but I think you can make a case that it's also about repression, right? You could say like it's about the dangers of sexuality, but it's also the dangers of repression. Like if you if you don't have a healthy attitude or relationship with what you want and how you feel, then like, yeah, you might just get swept off your feet by some crazy rich blood sucking fiend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah it's yeah, I, I totally agree with you about the whole control stuff. Um, but the things that you brought up earlier in discussion really got me thinking that this movie also really presents this fear of the outsider, like something yes. foreign coming in. And it, this movie does a very good job at playing both sides of it because the first act of the movie is the fear of you being the outsider and coming into an environment yeah. you're not familiar with, with Renfield going to Dracula's castle, and then it does the flip of that when Dracula goes to London, and now he is the outsider that is uh, dangerous and yes. to making people unconform and follow him and him. You know, there's also kind of like, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I hate to bring it up, but, you know, being in a post or kind of still pandemic world, it was kind of making me think about the spreading of viruses and how things True. spread c- coming from other places and how quickly they are you know as soon as he gets off the boat he hits someone that he immediately goes to a very crowded space in the in the theater and he meets people and he starts to infect their lives mm. uh, it was very much making me think of things like that and like the the spread of evil or debauchery or whatever yeah Oh, no, absolutely. It's the idea that, like, me going somewhere foreign will corrupt me, whether that's, you know, spiritually, emotionally, or literally, like, a virus. And the same thing, you know, here, of, like, something foreign, something new coming in could corrupt us. I think that's, like, a very relevant... I don't think that fear has ever left our society Mm -hmm. from when this movie i think it was around a long time before this movie was made and i still kicking around here now yeah yeah absolutely and i think that in a sense kind of also plays a little bit into maybe like the mutilation and body invasion because that is mm-hmm. kind of what he's doing he has that line he says like my blood you now courses through her veins talking talking about uh, i believe mina or lucy and it, it is kind of like the thing that this foreign person coming in now he's corrupting he's having this bodily invasion in these people and i think that oh. vampire movies today focus way more on that like bodily mutilation and just corruption from within yeah i think whenever you talk about seduction there's an element it's about you know the the you know using the controlling the mind to um you know change what the body wants rather you know is is there a sense of the fear of the devil and there's like like, like the 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 biblical devil in this i think um 
I think there's kind of this, uh, it's not explicit, but it's kind of like an, uh, an implicit suggestion that like, you know, if, if this is something that like the sort of, uh, religious artifacts will repel then it it implies the existence of a devil right like he's a an agent of satan or something you know um, mm-hmm. some kind of demon which is like a an offshoot of of lucifer um from a biblical standpoint so yeah it definitely is within the realm yeah mm-hmm. i know that we kind of discussed that but i loved your point that you made about this movie is using science to justify religion and because that that was something that didn't quite click with me until you brought it up, because I did find it interesting that our hero Van Helsing is a scientist that is using his quote scientific knowledge to justify these supernatural things, and then use that to combat Dracula. Because um, I was I was expecting this movie to fully the first time I watched it, I was expecting it to fully lean into that religiousness and that like it would maybe be a monk or a priest mm. or some sort of religious figure that would be able to combat Dracula. It's actually kind of interesting that our quote modern that Van Helsing movie with Hugh Jackman because his his character of Van Helsing is I mean he was raised in the church. He's right. not a scientist in in that sense and I know that's like a very <laughs> kind of silly uh horror action movie but uh, that's not very serious at all but i do find that interesting that like a more modern adaptation is to actually no no let's let's make him more have more religious roots in that um i think that's a convenient way to sidestep one of the like one of the issues that i had with dracula which was that like i was fully expecting like can you imagine if val val helsing was today. I mean, we have versions of Van Helsing today. They're just like all like COVID deniers. <laughs> like <laughs> they're like, no, trust me, I have science on this, bro. It's like, do you? Do you? Whoops, babe. Um, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but like this kind of like mad. I was expecting the the movie to do the work of like Van Helsing having to convince his team that like no 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 this is a thing but they just like buy in immediately which i found so wild (laughs) um they're just like sure yeah yeah, of course and i think that speaks to how spirituality um was accepted back then when this movie was made you're you're talking about literal legislation that came just literally three years later 1934 to like control the output of entertainment media to avoid moral corruption right which is like not something that happens um and i think it, it speaks to like to the people the way people just assumed uh religiosity as like based in fact or in based in provable science it also probably speaks to some of the newness of certain kinds of science too of like it's kind of seems like magic like well sure you trust the professor like you know, that's a hard thing to be a professor. He must know more than me. So I think when you see modern movies today, there's so much work from an exposition point of view that you would have to do to get a man of science, to have people believe a man of science is like fighting vampires or demons or whatever. So it's easier to just have it be like, it's just in a different world, just different different set of rules, different institution. That's it. That's that's how it goes, you know. But so it's a weird flip, I think. For the scariest aspect or element or scene in this movie, yeah. I don't find this movie particularly scary today. No. Um, I mean, it was at the time. Uh, I mean, I was reading that there were uh, people recited fainting watching this movie. Um, <laughs> and I think it has to be the shot of Bela Lugosi. He does like the saddest smile or whatever as mm-hmm. like the camera zooms in on him right before he bites someone. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what he's doing. It almost looks like he's trying to look like a jack-o'-lantern. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what they were going for in some of these shots, but... Yeah. yeah. But, so for the scariest aspects or scene in this movie, I I really have to say that I think the scariest thing in this is just the, quote, like, fall of Renfield. Um, his, yeah. Like I said earlier, he's the most sympathetic character in this. And what I find truly terrifying about him is that 
yes, he's been kind of turned and corrupted, but he has his internal struggle that is very present. And he is still trying to please his master, but it doesn't matter because at the end, his master still kills him. And honestly, him begging for his life as you see this very angry Lugosi come closer to him and then you see him fall. I did find that to be the scariest thing in this movie. It's sad, especially when you look at it from 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 where we sit in history or um, in the present day, I guess, of like, we can very easily read a, do a queer reading into that of like this guy struggling with his sexuality and his desire and sort of feeling like corrupted by this new influence that has arrived in his life and so like his demise is so tragic you know mm-hmm. it, it is and i love the uh maybe think just like him being like you and your your cape and your tux and your presence it made me gay man it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was the tux. It was all the tux. <laughs> I just couldn't resist the cape, you know. The tux with the white, the white bow tie. Oh, I love a yeah. white bow tie. Um, it's great. <laughs> mm. uh, was there anything else about this? That you, like, was was there any other um, scariest moments or just elements of this movie? Um, no, it really wasn't scary. I think it's hard to feel. It's really hard to consume a movie now where there's like no sound mixing. Yeah. Um, it's so strange. It's so uncomfortable to sit through. Um, especially when like, I, so I was going through, um, some of one of my favorite movies, like, um, I think Casablanca is like 1939. Did I just hmm. pull that out of my... 42. 42. Ah, oh, so close. Yeah, so close. So like, once you get into the 40s, you know, you have like Casablanca, the whole film noir movement is, is in full swing. Like, there's so much more drama that comes, um, and, and, and horror, honestly, like, um you're also we're also in a period 1931 is uh right in the middle of the great depression so i feel like hollywood entertainment was not really focused on um doing like gritty realistic melodramas it's very like campy light escapism Mm. stuff too you know that's 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 making money at the box office so um i think the movie itself to me is like i'm glad i watched it um but its point in history is just so fascinating to me i finally remembered yeah the other point that i was going to ask you and this yes. is such a non-serious question but renfield is at the sanitarium how is it that he just keeps getting out and just walking <laughs> around yo he's 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 uh he's um oh shit what's the word that i'm thinking of not resourceful. A more snappier word than resourceful. He's a he's cunning guy. He's able to cunning. Thank you. That's the word I'm thinking of. Yeah, cunning. Yeah, yeah. He's real. He's real cunning. He's just climbing out that window, you know, <laughs> just like the spiders do. Yeah, I just found that so funny. And they're like, it happens like three or four times in the movie. Like Renfield, you're out again. <laughs> the security at this place is not good. No, it sucks. They're not ready for vampire stuff. Oh my goodness! But yeah, so it's totally not a serious point that I completely forgot about. I'm glad that I brought. No, that but up. I'm glad you. I'm glad you remembered though. Yes. Um, you want to move on to the message of the movie? Sure. Okay, moving on to kind of like the tinfoil hat part of this discussion, where we kind of theorize and speculate and uh, try to put forth any sort of message or interpretation. I think that we've spoke spoken a lot to kind of this already with the control outsiders coming into this and everything um real estate being booming (laughs) (laughs) um but any sort of other wacky or interesting interpretations you had for this or messages i think like i think vampires you should always be reading any vampire movie whether they intended it or not when they're making it through a lens of sexuality and repression i think that is the crux of this story and why it's so timeless um and the the struggle between desire and so- what society thinks is acceptable you know that's the that's the sort of like overarching metaphor that comes into play in so many dracula adaptations or should come into play if they're you know what they're doing um of just like what is you know um what is love what is desire and how does um the, these rules of society play into those things you know 
I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Yeah, definitely going into with that lens. What is love? What is desire? I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. You know, I mentioned we talked about the control and everything, but the the quote that sticks out to me so much that I've mentioned already is that there are far worse things for man to fear than death. Um, yeah. And that's like a pretty scary take home message, I think. To absolutely advertise right there. That very much feels like a, a trailer line, and. <laughs> And I don't know. I think that's kind of like an interesting thing that he's not necessarily trying to kill people, but he is making them the undead. Um, and you, th- this message of is this message of you know, while we kind of like now contemporarily we have this idea of like you know conforming is bad, you know, be individualistic and be unique and you know do what you want, but. This movie is kind of very much just like this is what happens when you don't conform or when you go outside of mm. society, you become the woman in white and prey on ch- children. There, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's also you can also look at it through the lens of consumption in the sense mm. that like always hungry, never satisfied. You know, uh, Dracula he he's always in love or rather in lust. He's always after the next thing until they're completely dried up, um, and then he, you know. He might be like, oh, woe is me, but he's not really, he doesn't really care about his victims. So there's something to be said about sort of this nature of this all-consuming force, this narcissism, this, um, this idea that like, this perception of, of, of this kind of like Romeo attitude of like always being in love and never satisfied, even when you get what you say you want. Um, so you can look at it through that lens too, of just literally this like um very powerful force just sucking an entire town dry um Mm -hmm. and then moving on to the next and being like oh well that was unfortunate also like i don't want to discourage anyone from like going back and watching um black and white or silent movies i think you might need to be in the right headspace because um it's definitely not the same vibes as we're used to today but it's so important it's so interesting to go back and see what technology was doing back then, what how storytelling worked back then. You can and you can understand a lot about why certain things happen now in cinema when you go back and trace, um, you know, trace the evolution of technology. It's fun to go back and watch movies from the twenties and the thirties and being like, yo, that was the first time someone did that. Like that was the first time someone put music in the score or someone did a certain kind of lighting technique or kinds of editing. Like it's really fun and, and I think it really makes watching movies now all that it's it's much more it's much more easy to appreciate movies now when you're you're excited about um about how they're made. Yeah. One hundred percent and I do encourage people for that for those reasons and i do still really enjoy these movies um like Mm -hmm. the the james whale ones i I think are just like superior to to like this this movie like you know his frankenstein movies and invisible man um i think are superior to this but it i think it's because he was much more because james whale was also like the the director the whole time he didn't need to lean on a cinematographer to kind of like just do stuff for him but because you could tell Whale has a vision for how he wants it yeah. to look and feel. And like what he, what he has a real vision of what he wants his audience to be looking at. And he does it in a very yeah. elegant way. And, you know, he was a theater performer and theater director. And he was able to kind of yeah. like take that skill set and I think transfer it very well. Um, and those movies do feel like stage plays at times. But like he's, he's doing it in a way where it still feels like a good stage play. We're here. I don't mean to like keep dissing Browning or anything, but I, I wasn't really getting a sense of what his strengths were in his direction yeah. and like what because there's so many like hard cuts to things that people will mention and like we'll just see Dracula standing there or just like a bat. Um, yeah. And but I, I did appreciate that there was some cool stuff in this that he was that the DP was trying to do with the camera that like you obviously don't have the advantage of doing in a stage play. And I think that one of the coolest kind of like technical moments um, is just, it's like towards the end of the movie and Van Helsing, Mina and John are outside kind of like on this porch or whatever talking, but the camera is still inside the house and the camera kind of works through the house Yeah, to bring us to them. Yeah. You can still see kind of like, the interior of like the room, like the lamps and the desk, but we're focusing on these people outside. I thought like yeah. that was cool. 
to see. Yeah. And it's very much like them like, oh, we can actually do this because this isn't a stage thing. So we could absolutely tell the story that way. So I thought that was very cool. And that's that's pretty common, especially with movies from this era. It's like it's it's always focused on what the previous medium was. You'll see new media will the first stages will often copy what the old media was. And that's what that's what um, movies from the 20s and the 30s are like. Like, they feel like plays very often because that was the sort of leading performance of story... To, way to perform a storytelling was in a play. So um, there's a lot of staging. The camera shows a lot of things that now you would cut out, like walking in and out of rooms. Mm-hmm. Which, like, you don't need to see that in a movie. But, like... That's kind of the rhythm that people were used to telling stories with. But then it gets really exciting when like someone clues in to be like, oh, we can move the camera through this way, and we can compose shots different way, and we can really direct the eye to look at different things um, in ways that you can't do in a play. So that's exciting, too, to watch older movies, to be like, oh, someone clued in to that right there. That's really cool, yeah. All right, before we wrap things up for today, it is now time for the Cabin in the Woods trinket segment. We will discuss what is a perfect movie prop or item from Dracula to put in the basement of Cabin in the Cabin in the Woods to summon mm-hmm. Count Dracula. Um, mm-hmm. This one is interesting. I think that there's a couple of things we could do. The first thing that yeah. comes to mind is the amulet that he wears around his neck at the beginning True. of the movie. It's very Classic. classy. And yeah. You know, I could definitely see somebody wanting to play with that if they find that down there. It's a very yeah. shiny piece of jewelry. <laughs> yeah. I think we could go... I think it would be fun also if you had, like, a dossier of paperwork... Yes! ...that, like, someone would pick up and then and then get a paper cut, and that would summon Dracula, you know, a drop Ooh. of blood. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. very good. I was going way more literal and then signing it. Like, they're signing their... Oh, true, like, too. A, yeah. a contract yeah. with the devil... Um, but no, that actually like yours more because that plays that apes, you know, what happens in the film with, yeah. <laughs> with Rainfield. Yeah. Um, um, can we do like a jar of dirt? Sure. Absolutely. He loves his dirt. Yeah. He needs his like, soil. Like, yeah. He needs, <laughs> just like this rich dude is like, he's like, excuse me, I just need to like a fistful of dirt, please. <laughs> Pocket Sir? sand. Yeah. Sir. <laughs> Um, I'm, uh, I do love, we see the world's teeniest little coffin when the bee wakes up and comes out of its bee coffin at the beginning of the movie. I feel, I feel like a harmonica yeah. belongs in that box, though. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, you could also go, like, the Van Helsing route, because I feel like Van Helsing is kind of a villain in an alternate reading of this. Ooh. Like, like, like Van Helsing is, like, a zealot kind of crazy guy like imagine like dracula's just kind of like trying to vibe on his own and like you know had some like rough times he's trying to start a new life in the cool city like london and trying to meet some cool girls and then this like crazy professor shows up and is just like trying to like just just like fucking up his party you know (laughs) so maybe one of like van helsing's books or something could like also be a cabin in the woods kind of trinket so I love that your read of it is that Van Helsing is like a cock block to Dracula. <laughs> Yo, he is, though. <laughs> he kills his wives. He had a good thing going. He does. He fucked he, it up. He does murder them off screen, which, by the yeah. way, Dracula is the world's heaviest sleeper, by the way. <laughs> he goes and kills Renfield, immediately zonks out in his coffin, and... Yeah. Uh, Van Helsing and John open up and they're like talking at normal level, moving this wooden coffin and everything. Dracula is still zonked. So he's an old man. He needs his sleep, you know? I he's guess, been around a while. I guess that dude. <laughs> <laughs> Heavy sleeper Dracula. Um, yeah. I, I was also going to say the real estate paperwork that, that you mentioned. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of anything else, but you know, I think. I think those were you know, there weren't a whole lot of cool other prompts besides maybe the the the, the stogie box with the mirror that Van Helsing mm, uses. True. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely however though, going back to his wardrobe, because he does have Dracula's great taste. Uh his top hat and cane. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, let's put that down there. 
awesome. Yeah. Look like Mr. Monopoly. (laughs) (laughs) Ellie, thank you so much for coming on this morning to discuss Dracula from 1931 with me. This has been a ton of fun. I always enjoy talking horror movies with you. Um, Oh, it's so much fun to, it's so much fun to be here and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you invited me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to let people know, you know, Spotify raps are happening. I was telling Ellie at the beginning of this, but, uh, you know, there's a Spotify rap for podcasters and our men episode that we discussed, that was, uh, one of my most listened to episodes on Spotify. So thank you everybody for tuning in. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen men yet, just, um, you know, you should. You're going to see something you ain't never seen before. I promise you. Yes. Watch it and then come console yourself by listening to us discuss it and work, work our way through that movie. Um, you mm-hmm. will. It, it will be your therapy after watching it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No promises from me. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you so much again, Ellie. Where, where can people find you on, on the interwebs? Yeah, you can find me at Bad Critic on Instagram, on Twitter, um we have a good time right now i'm writing about um it's funny we talked about the Hayes code a bit today but i'm writing a bit about um how horror movies and exploitation movies were censored in the 80s so the next couple posts is going to be around that and you should come hang out we have a good time it's good vibes only but um with (laughs) horror movies and also some of the most disturbing movies i've ever seen hell yes well ellie thank you so much there will be links in the show notes to your instagram and twitter page and also i'm going to link your wordpress article down there about your twilight (laughs) endeavor so everybody check out wordpress.com is an amazing website they're a fantastic partner i love working with those people you get to read articles read by very smart people like ellie also want to shout out and thank the patrons again Tiffany, Jasher, James, and Cleveland, you guys rule. It was you all that voted on me doing this episode. So if people want bonus stuff, head over to patreon.com slash barkerhorror. On there right now, most currently, Orlean and I, we did a recap of kind of like a lightning round review of movies that we watched in October to celebrate Halloween. So head over there. You can hear us kind of just talk about Halloween. And I shared my halloween night from this year and it was an embarrassing story so head over there um <laughs> be sure to follow me on twitter and instagram at brooker horror and i will see you guys next time i bid you well thank you so much be sure to watch good movies bye bye